The reading for today is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armour of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts help us to grow into the likeness of Christ. In the name of God, our Creator, our Redeemer, and our Sustainer. Amen. Well, this reading concludes the letter to the Ephesians, following on from the passages that Stuart referred to last week that expand on Paul's appeal to be subject to one another out of reverence to Christ. That this is to have an attitude of humility in all our relationships since we are members of Christ's body, the church. Today's reading might, is a well-known passage to many people and so it can be easy perhaps to sit back and to listen to it comfortably because it is so familiar. But I'm suggesting it is actually rather an unusual passage and quite confronting. I wonder whether you agree with me on that. I also wonder, as Rhonda read, what questions were raised for you? Here are three questions that came to mind for me when I began preparing this sermon a few weeks ago. The armor of God, where does that idea even come from? What does Paul mean when he talks about the wiles of the devil, cosmic powers, and the spiritual forces of evil? And what does putting on a full suit of armor have to do with me as a Christian living in the 21st century? 
The word that Paul uses for armor was a full, full armor. As we explore these questions, I hope that together we can gain a better understanding of our role in the world as members of the body of Christ and why that matters. The armor of God, where does that idea come from? Well, the bigger picture of divine warfare is certainly a part of the biblical tradition. The phrase armor of God is actually rare We find references in the prophet Isaiah and also in the wisdom of Solomon. In Isaiah 11, we're introduced to the ideal monarch of the peaceful kingdom who wears righteousness as a belt around his waist and faithfulness as a belt around his loins. This monarch is Yahweh and his armor represents divine intervention on behalf of the victims of violence and oppression. The victims, these victims are both human beings as well as the virtues that actually make it possible to live peacefully in a community. It makes these virtues make peaceful communal life possible. In Isaiah 59, the prophet describes God's fight against oppression and injustice. And I'm going to read, picking up at verse 8. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We wait for light, and there is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in the gloom. We, we wait for justice, but there is none, for salvation, but it is far from us. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands at a distance." For truth stumbles in the public square, and uprightness cannot enter. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, and was appalled that there was no one there to intervene. So his own arm brought him victory, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a mantle. Here we have Yahweh fighting against a violent society where no one intervenes on behalf of the vulnerable. Yahweh puts on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Centuries after Isaiah, in the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 5, we read this. The Lord will take his zeal as his whole armor and will arm all creation to repel his enemies. He will put on righteousness as a breastplate and wear impartial justice as a helmet. He will take holiness as an invincible shield and sharpen stern wrath for a sword and creation will join with him to fight against his foes. These passages in Isaiah and in Wisdom are informed by the narrative traditions of God acting to bring liberation and judgment. So it is to fight injustice that God takes on armor of righteousness, justice, and salvation. Our reading today began this way. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God. A note about God's power might be helpful here, since we live in a culture where power is certainly a loaded word. I'd probably argue that power has always been a loaded word. The power of God that we heard expressed in Isaiah and wisdom and that we've explored in our journey through Ephesians reveals that God's love, God's faithfulness, and God's pursuit of justice always have peace and the best interest of the other at its center. God's power liberates and enriches. The power of God has the capacity to make whole, to redeem, to bring salvation. Power that is exercised in any way that diminishes another by virtue of their otherness, their ethnicity, their gender, education, sexuality, age, or in any other way is unjust power. And we encounter unjust power expressed in small ways each and every day. I'm wondering whether you can think of a recent experience where you experienced unjust power or you were witness to somebody else in that situation. Sometimes we might have different views about what is just and unjust. These conversations can be difficult. It's really tricky to navigate this territory of coming to a common understanding of what is just and unjust. Bishop Stephen, in the first week that he was here in Ephesians chapter 1, talked about the challenge of the notion of inclusion for the church. That could be one such conversation And so, hence Paul's appeal to the Ephesians to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Unjust power is most visible and destructive where control and dominance deprive others of their freedom, their identity, their safety, their dignity. And we know there is no simple response to such expressions of power. Going to move to my second question. What does Paul mean by wiles of the devil, cosmic powers, and the spiritual forces of evil? That's not language that we use in our everyday conversation with our friends and our family and our colleagues. Yet this is an important question for which it would be good to find an understanding because if we have anything in common with the community that's addressed in this letter, it seems we are in a battle, we are at war with these forces. The first thing to say is that this exact language isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament. Just as the armor of God phrase is rare, this, these particular phrases aren't used elsewhere. It's unique to this chapter in Ephesians. While the idea of evil is a common theme, evil expressed in this way is unique to this passage. The second thing to clarify is that early Christianity inherited lots of things as it emerged. It inherited both Jewish and Greco-Roman concepts of what we call cosmology. Cosmology is the way that we address the big questions like 
Where are humans located in the universe? And what is our relationship to God, or if you're Greek, to the gods? In first century cosmology, there was a perception that the spiritual world was filled with all kinds of beings located in the heavenly places. That is, the places above the earth, since the heavens were like a dome that was in place over the earth. And there were various tiers of, dwelling, of beings that dwelt there. Our cosmology is shaped by our ever-expanding concept of the universe, which is informed by the incredible discoveries made possible by all kinds of scientists. It's also shaped by our experience and by the scriptures. I've already made clear that evil is a theme throughout the scriptures. I think it's also fair to say that we have all experienced evil in some way, what we might call the active power of evil in the world. For some of us, this experience of evil will be beyond the imagining of man. That evil continues as a reality in our world has been taken up by authors, philosophers, theologians, and movie makers. People who continue to wrestle with how we portray this ongoing battle between good and evil. For example, think of iconic scenes portrayed by authors like C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, and J.K. Rowling through their characters, characters like Lord Voldemort, Narnia's White Witch, and Middle-earth Saruman, characters who've been enticed away from good towards evil. Even in the 21st century, the fourth question in our Anglican baptism service continues to be, do you renounce Satan and all that is evil? At the heart of the baptism service is the promise that we are reconciled to God, that we are made members of Christ's body, the church. We commit ourselves to following Christ as the way to life. Baptism reassures us that encounter with evil differs in every way from encountering peace through the presence of God. Isaiah and the wisdom of Solomon showed us that unjust, injustice was the evil against which God fought when equipped with the armour of righteousness and salvation. Paul presents Christ's truth, righteousness, gospel, word, and spirit as the means by which we can challenge injustice. The injustice of violence that harms and instills fear. The injustice of power that limits or confines the potential and well-being of another. The injustice of hate fostered by ignorance or, or unforgiveness. The injustice of denying Christ's rule of peace and love in a community or in a person. Evil in the guise of injustice is alive and well in our world, just as it was when the letter to the Ephesians was written. This brings me to my final question. What does putting on a full suit of armour have to do with me as a Christian living in the 21st century. 
In this final chapter of Ephesians, Paul is concluding what he began writing about in chapter 1, where he says that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In a moment, I'm going to read Paul's prayer to the Ephesian community from chapter 1, because I think it will help us to hear how chapter 6 concludes the letter. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I want to highlight three things. It's God's power that raised Christ from death. In Christ, God's power and authority are over all things on earth and in heaven. And the church is Christ's body, the fullness of Christ. As members of the body of Christ, wherever we are, we are called to take on the armor of God and to participate in the battle against injustice as individuals, but especially together as the church. And in this way, we actively engage in God's mission in the world. Christ's death has ended the need for hostility between people. The end game is always peace. In chapter 2, Paul writes, For he, that is Christ Jesus, is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one. He's broken down the dividing wall, the hostility between us. He's abolished the law with its commandments that he might create in himself one humanity in place of two, thus making peace, reconciling both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. The end game in this battle is peace, lasting peace, peace that comes about only through action, peace that passes understanding, the peace we have to offer as disciples of Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, and who came to bring sight to the blind and freedom to captives, and who has become the cornerstone of the church. There was a saying that emerged from a particular Christian movement in the United States in the late 19th century, and you may have heard this phrase, let go and let God. 
Let go and let God promoted a sense of passivity in the Christian. The Christian could sit down and let go and let God go to work. While the armor may be seen as defensive, it's only worn to protect ourselves when we're actually engaged in the battle. Paul's appeal to the Ephesians is to stand. It's a call to action. It's a call to be active participants in the divine battle against injustice. The armor also has to be offensive. Anglicans have a tradition of being proactive in the fight against injustice. The abolition of the slave, of slave trade in England in the 18th century and the welcome offered to refugees and asylum seekers in Anglican communities around the world, including Australia in this century, are powerful examples of what might be achieved. There are way more examples than that that we could share together this morning and hopefully in the, in the months ahead we'll have an opportunity to talk about what some of those might be. I also think that the characteristics of our life as Anglicans reflects the elements of the armour of God, that we are grounded in scripture, that we are focused on mission, that we are known as people who worship together. So this appeal to stand and to put on the armour of God has everything to do with me and with you as people living in the 21st centuries as followers of Christ. We are called to participate in the hard work of confronting justice in its many for, of confronting injustice in its many forms. This is our calling as Christ's body, the church. And on that note, I think it's really easy for us in the church to say that injustice actually takes place out there, beyond this place, in the wider community in other people's homes, in other countries. The reality is that there is injustice in the church too. The enormous price paid by those who have suffered, suffered all kinds of abuse from those within the church has left deep scars. We need to take on the armor of God and be diligent to confront injustice both within and beyond the church. So as the church, let us stand. Together, let us put on the armor of God and engage in the ongoing battle in a world where we are surrounded by injustice, while reassured that in Christ, God's power and authority are over all things on earth and in heaven. Amen.